Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent, here with my co-host, Sean Cheatham, who's finally back on the saddle after um, a short absence. Um, you can find us and other podcasts at reformpodcast.com. Also, check out our blog at theparticularbaptist.net. And today we have a guest with us today, uh, Mr. Rashad, all the way, coming all the way from Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, he's a member of Grace Community Church in Jacksonville, uh, Florida. Uh, he's been a guest on the Bud Zone podcast and the Conversation with a Calvinist podcast um, and has kind of this slogan that we'll be talking about a little bit. Uh, the government is not God, which he has some shirts on and, and stuff like that. But welcome, brother. Thank you for joining us today. Hey, thank you, guys. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, so I guess talking about the government is not God. Where, where did that slogan come from and, and what is the significance of that? Yeah, uh, I think it's fair to say that uh, back uh, when everything dropped in 2020, uh, with COVID hitting in March and everything kind of shutting down, I think um, that that was good. Nothing that God does is a mistake. Uh, so what I think that caused a lot of us here in America as Christians to do us uh, to go back to the text that we we heard being repeated to us, uh, you know, Romans 13. Uh, the first Peter two text, the Titus three texts. Those were like the three main texts uh, that we would hear from a lot of pulpits in America, as far as um, some of the restrictions and everything that were coming down from the government as to why we should, you know, abide by what they're saying. And so what that did, at least for me and at least uh, the people close to me, it caused us to really go back to the text and, and research it and, 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 and work through the context, work through other biblical texts uh, where we saw uh, Israel dealing with uh, role governments and uh, looking to see how these texts were handled historically with the church. And um, and so from my studies, uh, discussing, reading, uh, listening to podcasts, listening to uh, other brothers talk about it, praying about it, meditating about it, it seemed to me at least uh that we were, uh, a lot of us here were a little bit too quick to just do whatever the government said um, as far as anything that they would come up with it, as far as it impacts the, the operation of the church. And uh, this phrase just kept coming in my mind. You know, I didn't hear any audible voices. I don't hear voices anybody. I don't want you to, to get that impression, but. We'll have to kick you off the show if you start. Oh, voices. goodness. Yeah, I promise. <laughs> I'm not hearing voices. Now, I have conversations with myself sometimes to try to argue. You know, I try to argue against myself sometimes to see if my point stands. But uh, so anyhow, I um, just just something just kept ringing in my head. Um, a lot of us were treating the government as if they were God. And though the government is to be a deacon of God, a servant of God in that way, I'm like, wow, we're 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 treating the government as if. It is God, you know, whatever level, local, state or federal. But the government is not God. The government is not actually God. The government has standards that they need to uphold as well that's being ordained by God. So that was the phrase that that uh, kept appearing in my mind. Um, and I put it on shirts and um, gave out some shirts, passed out some shirts or, or whatnot. And um, so, uh, yeah, that's a little bit about what where that came from. Makes a good catchphrase, and it it captures the essence, I think, of of what we're saying that the the government is not the ultimate authority. That Christ is the head of His church, not the government. And you know, we submit to the governing authorities in a sense, but at the end of the day, we right. have to submit to God first. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Yeah. Our posture should always be to submit. Uh, we don't just want to the the buck or, or kick against every single thing that they say, but it, it definitely does, to your point, have to line up with uh, what the word of God said. And, and uh, yeah, I just wanted to put something on this shirt. I didn't want to be, you know, controversial or um, hasty to do anything. So I said, well, the, yeah, the government is not God. I'm safe there. So, <laughs> you know, I, uh, um, so that's a little bit about that. Okay. All right. So our discussion today is around uh, theology proper on the doctrine of God. Um, you know, we've seen more and more of this, especially in reform circles, this discussion continuing to snowball, I guess, for better or for worse, um, with both sides of the aisle. Um, you know, you have those on the classical theist side who are trying to recover a biblical theism and reemphasize where this is in history and in scripture. And then those on the other side are trying to push against, uh, maybe not so intentionally necessarily, but they are pushing against historical theology and classical theism. So this this is a relevant discussion. But with your own journey, Rashad, um, tell us a little bit about your journey in theology proper. Did you come to these things gradually, or uh, were you taught them early on as a believer? Yeah, thanks for that that question there, Daniel. Uh, that's really the question, or one of the questions. Um, so, you know, it's funny because I don't ever remember a point since I have been regenerated and saved by Christ um, where I was actually taught what we would say is the, the opposing side of, the, of this discussion. Um, it, it we'll talk about it later, I, I, I guess, uh, with eternal subordination and, and wherever, however you want to refer to that. It, it seems like that was ingrained into you know, a lot of, uh, of us as being Christians here in America. Uh, but for me personally, um, I think 2016 was the year. Uh, 2016, when that whole Trinity debate kicked off, which was, again, another blessing from God, uh, though some, some people may not think think it that way, but it definitely was, at least for me. Uh, 2016, when that whole thing kicked off uh, about subordinationism or relations of authority, submission, however folks choose to refer to it, uh, that, again, forced me to go back to the text and to read God's word more and to study his word more and to read books from our forerunners in the faith uh, about the topic. And so naturally, that led me to a lot of different books uh, about the Trinity uh, from uh, first century uh, on up to where we are now. And so I went and read so uh, so many books that that I read, so many things I uh I listened to, uh, whether it was uh, podcasts or listened to blogs or just sat in actually on conversations between brothers talking about it. Um, and for all intents and purposes, it was like I went to school uh, in 2016 and, and studying these matters. And so I saw from my study and again, uh, just from what I have been able to gather, that um, for us here in this current generation, for a lot of us, at least in this current generation, we've been very lackadaisical with our doctrine of God. And what it has done is that you end up repeating some old things that we've already seen from church history that have, have been rejected. So uh, again, for me, 2016, I think was, was the kind of the catalyst for me to actually get in there in depth and really research and study uh, those matters. 
Uh, but prior to 2016, I, I would have fell into the category of holding to eternal subordination of the son. I wouldn't have been a classical theist. Uh, I would have very likely been, been holding to a form of modified immutability. Um, you know, kind of how this idea that God just gets into relations with us, takes on covenantal properties and kind of just gets into a give and take relationship you know, mm-hmm. with his creature. I would I would have been there. Um, but again, by God's grace, 2016 caused a, a lot of brothers, and my story is not anything odd, but a lot of brothers to go back and just look at this thing again with, with fresh eyes, I would say. Uh, and here I am now. I definitely resonate with you there, just saying it's sort of in the air of American Christianity, because I was very much the, uh, the same way. Uh, I wouldn't have known the term, but I was definitely a theistic mutualist, and it wasn't really until I started getting challenged on it. And uh, we read through Dolezal's book in a men's read at the church that I came to the conclusion that I was just wrong. Um, yeah. So I came a little bit later than you you did. When did we read that book, Dan? Was that 2019, I think? Something like that. Yeah, it was, yeah. It was in the last few years. Yeah, but definitely resonate with that uh, uh, experience that you had. Yeah, yeah it's a blessing. Yeah, yeah, and... And I think I'm I'm kind of along the same veins. I think I've always, you know, growing up, uh, I've grown up in the Reformed Church for quite a while. Um, I wasn't taught, I don't remember being taught about simplicity or, you know, inseparable operations or anything like that. But I think I always believed that God was immutable, God was eternal. There's, it, it was just kind of assumed. But the implications of that, I don't, hadn't really been worked out yet. And I know for me that um, Dolezal's book, All That Is in God, um, when I first read that, it just it just kind of it was like a watershed moment for me. It just helped. It was like, wait a minute these these things have real implications that that affect important other important things in our understanding of God. Um, so I, that book was very helpful for me to help me to really understand these things. And from there, it was just you know trying to eat up all these all these concepts and and such. Where is this found in church history? Oh, wow, this is actually consistent. The, the reformers taught this. The early church believed this. This isn't something new. Um, so, yeah, it, it's just interesting to see how the Lord really works with his people to help us to grow, you know, in knowledge of him. And I think where the church, you know, is is lacking in its teaching. And I think that leads us into our, you know, our next question. You know, Rashad, why do you think that theology proper has been neglected and, and twisted in the church. And what are some examples of that that we see? Yeah, this definitely touch, touches on what we just expressed. Um, I think it's just a, a, it's ingrained in us, one. So it's almost like you have to be untaught these things or shown just the truth plainly from God's word. But I think the biggest thing, at least what I've been able to gather, is that we have just not known our Protestant history. We just have a, a a lack of a lack of realization of what we were taught historically. Um, it's kind of like riding a bike. If it's, it's if you forget how to ride a bike, uh, you you can get back on the bike, and you can ride the bike, and you'll soon gain your wheels. It's kind of like what's happened with uh, us here uh, in America. Uh, in this present generation of ev- evangelicals here in America, we just haven't forgotten our, we just haven't uh, forgotten. We have forgotten it or we just don't know it. Um, so 
what you see biblically is you see each generation teaches the following generation God's word. I mean, we see that from the very beginning. This generation uh, and gives it to the following generation, and then they are expected to give it to the following generation. And you see that constant theme from the Old Testament on uh, up until the New Testament through the end of the of the canon. Uh, but we just don't know our history uh, and. I've, my wife will tell you if you know her. I, I always, my whole thing is whenever I, whenever I'm studying or researching something, I'm looking to try to pinpoint exact timelines when something went astray. And um, I think that that restoration movement here in America uh, was something that was really instrumental into where you see us currently, or or some people may refer to it as the Stone Campbell movement. Uh, which was uh, around the time of the Second Great Awakening. And so what they are known for amongst several things, one of the things that you you brothers know, they're known for that slogan, no creed but Christ. No creed but Christ. No, no book but the Bible. Uh, only law is love. Uh, uh, call Bible things by Bible names. That was the whole idea with the Stone Campbell movement. And so prior to that, Though when our Protestant forerunners brought the faith over to this new land here in America, uh, many of your churches here in, in America were confessional, creedal churches. Uh, I don't know an exact percentage, but it's up there. Um, but what happens then, you know, you have this new country being birthed and what, the country was birthed because of oppressive rules and regulations over uh, across the pond. And so when they get here to the United States of America and this country is instituted, what, what's the theme? American independence, rugged American independence. We don't need the ways of the past. We don't need what we just left behind. You know, uh, we're American. We'll find our own way and we'll just kind of blaze our own path. That carried over religiously. And so you saw that kind of funnel down in that way. The Stone Campbell movement. Reject the ways of the past. You know, we want to return to the Christianity of the first century, which oddly enough, or ironically, they move further away from it, you know, by their uh, trying to distance themselves from uh, our heritage. And so um, as that started to go on uh, into the in this in this country uh, in the 20th century, you, you saw less or you saw more and more churches uh, distance themselves from the confessional history. Our heritage either don't teach the history or they just don't know the history because they are attempting to redo the will each successive generation. But we have these men who have been given the same Holy Spirit in their time that we have today who have worked through these doctrines over the last 1,000, 2,000 years. You don't need to reinvent the will when, when it comes to you in your generation. But that movement there, that no creed but Christ movement, no book but the Bible, uh, and those things on their head sound nice, you know. Yeah, we will say, yeah, the Bible. Yeah, we're about the Bible, you know. Um, we're about Christ. But when you when you flesh that out a little bit, uh, what they were attempting to do with that with that movement there, catastrophic, catastrophic impact on uh, the church today here in America. Uh, just a rejection uh, of our Protestant history, or the idea that some some way, shape, or form we don't need those those brothers and sisters from the past, we can kind of just 
get in our little vacuum and do our theology on our own here without regard what they said. Just us in our Bible, no regard what the church said, uh, no regard for anything of the past. And that's why you have a repeat of, of old age uh, heresy and, and heterodox views uh, for our topic here, the doctrine of God and, and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, these, these nothing new under the sun that the preacher say that in Ecclesiastes. And so um, you see it just being replayed. But it comes from a lack of understanding our Protestant history, either rejecting it or just not knowing it. So um, an example, as you mentioned, um, I, I mentioned a little bit earlier, modified immutability will be one of one of the, the examples of, of how our doctrine of God is going haywire. The idea that uh, when we look in the passages and we see uh, uh, scriptures with reference to God um, either relenting or or repenting that he did something or changes his mind about something or doing something to see, you know, what the person would do. So then he could act in that way. Uh, uh, how they've added covenant, what they call covenantal properties to God. And he actually enters into real relationships with men and he lives their life with them. And he uh, gives and take and these things happen and, they're, well, he's immutable is what they will say, but uh, he will change in himself, you know, in eternity past. Well, I'm not a smart, smartest tool in tool shed, but if God wills change in himself, so that means he's actually changing. So that's not immutability. <laughs> am I am I wrong there? Nope, nope not at not all. Immutability. <laughs> and so uh, that's that's what you, what you really see, you know. <laughs> Man, either forgetting the history of God's church or just rejecting it outright. You know, it's interesting that you you bring up the American aspect to it. Um, the cultural, I guess, the, the cultural change that's wanting to be done um, in the church, I think, has affected this some. Like you talk when like Erez started coming out in 2016 with uh, Owen Strand, you know, he tied that directly to his view of uh, marriage and the roles of, of men and women. Right. So you, you have these cultural norms or these cultural revisions that are wanting to be done, which are good, right? It's good to have a biblical view of marriage and the roles of husband and wife, et cetera. But to impose those back to God um, as if there's a one-to-one comparison there is problematic. And I think there is this, this push to take our cultural language and put it back on God ad intra. Um, and, and that has created some of these issues, I think. Yeah, it, it just has devastating uh, impact to your theology, man. I mean, uh, and, and, and at least most of these, these guys, at least in, um, uh, I can't speak for some of them, but I, I do know for a fact that Wayne Gruden just outright denies impassibility. So I'm, I'm assuming that that is the case for a lot of the guys who who we're, we're discussing in that way. Um, and this is with all respect. I, I'm not I'm not anathematizing any of these guys that I reference uh, that I may reference today. Um, but the outright rejection of impassibility, I think, is another one. Um, as well, well, yeah, the Bible clearly talks about God having emotions, you know, and how he's grieved and he was hurt and he grew more angry 
you know, or he uh, felt this certain way and we impose our creaturely emotions and and ways and manners of acting back into the divine, uh, Daniel, as you said, that intro, catastrophic, catastrophic, destructive um, uh, implications on your theology there. Um, just having <laughs> the creator-creature distinction. You know, we, we, we're mixing and mashing that. And not only that, we're just uh, reading the incarnation of Christ back into uh, the divine being. And um, yeah, you got to be able to hammer those things out, man, and, and make good sense of it. Um, I'm reminded of of uh, something that Luther said to Erasmus, even though he was getting on Erasmus about free will, that whole debate. One of the statements from Luther, and this is probably one of the, the only things I, I take from, from Luther. This is no shot at Luther. I love Luther, by the way anybody watching but uh he told erasmus he said that your your thoughts of god are too human and that is something that that sticks with me and i think we can apply that statement here um our thoughts of god are too human but we are humans you know how do you really rationalize rationalize that well um our thoughts of god are too human we we posit things to him that is not proper to posit to the divine. Um, and we'll discuss a little, you know, more of that, um, I'm sure. Going back to the whole no creed but uh, Christ thing, um, critics of classical theism will often claim that we're importing some sort of unbiblical philosophy into our reading of scripture, and that's how we come up with these ideas. How would you address that claim? And what do you think the balance is between not allowing unbiblical ideas to color our interpretation and, uh, on the other hand, using logic and reason with the scriptures um, to come to proper understandings of God? Yeah, that's that's the main charge that you hear, right? Yeah, it's, it's kind of like they need to trade market probably and, and put that on the shirt and sell it. <laughs> do not impose unbiblical philosophical speculation upon the text. That'll, that'll be a nice shirt. You might have to put some on the front and some <laughs> on the back, but it, it, it may take off here. I'm not sure. But yeah, that is the, um, that's what they say. Uh, but I like, I like to turn the question around and ask because I always see that, but I never see how it's happening. And it's very hard to respond to accusations when you don't know what the accusation is that's one or two it's a straw man accusation something that you're not even arguing for but just to be fair to your question you see them say well you'll you'll turn god into some kind of immobile immovable god kind of like you guys' favorite pagan philosophers aristotle and plato you know those are the two names that come up and then uh you you guys Quote Aquinas, who drew from those guys. You know, you're important. This idea of God being immobile and immovable. But um, I haven't heard you, brother, say that. I haven't heard anyone else say that. But that's one of the charges uh, that are levied, levied our way. No, we haven't said that God is immovable or immobile. He's He acts. He is the active agent. You know, so he causes things. You know, to happen and go about and move and, and live according to their being, how being, however he has that go goes. And they'll reference that and they'll say, well, you know, you, 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 you're making it like God is like the pagan gods from, you know, uh, ages past. No, well, I happen to think that uh, 
the God that you guys potentially have is like those gods from past. I mean, we could talk about Zeus, you know, uh, Poseidon, is, uh, those other Greek gods or the Roman gods or even Baal. Um, those are the gods who had human emotions and and reacted to something that happened to them and got mad with each other and, and inflicted harm on each other up on Mount Olympus and other places and and got mad and grew more angry with you know the humanity and they inflicted punishment on humanity because in some way humanity can harm them. You know, that is not the God that we are positing here. You know, that, that is the God that, that I will say that some of those, those brothers, whether knowingly or unknowingly, are positing. So the, the, the charge about uh, us uh, holding to an immovable God, a God who's just immobile, rigid, who kind of just is like the deist God who sets things and then he just goes and doesn't have a care in the world, no. You know, we're, we're, we're definitely not saying that. God is the active agent. And so um, how can we not go down that pathway? I know we all on this call will, will agree. You know, we don't want to end there with, with that type of, of God. I, I, I'm partial to how the uh, Westminster Confession of Faith reads in 1.6, where it talks about um, good and necessary consequence. You know, as you're interpreting and studying the scripture, you know, what can we infer from the text that is of good and necessary consequence? I think that is very helpful uh, with with myself uh, and, and anyone else when it when it comes to these different topics here, um, because we do see from the biblical record that God is not just this immovable stoic as the charges levied uh, against us. But that doesn't allow us to say that God is like us, you know, in how he expresses emotions or creaturely emotions as they would posit back to him or how he, we see these expressions of him in scripture. No, we, we, we can't uh, posit that back to God. That, that again would lead to a God, uh, I forget who says it, but um, if God was actually like some of these brothers are saying, he would be the most pitiful being in existence. If we could, you know, somehow every time he sees a sin, he just gets more and more dejected and inflicts more and more harm and hurt, and he's grieved more and more. I mean, I, I can't speak for you guys, but I don't, I don't, I don't want to worship a God like that. That I could inflict harm or change in, you know, in that way. No, that is not the God of the Bible. Um, so I kind of like to flip that question around on them that you asked, Sean. And um, I say, well, please show us where are we wrong at in this? How is it wrong? Or you just see them charging you with some type of argumentation that you didn't say. And it's, and it's um, I'm really not the one to waste much time. Uh, with charges that I didn't say, I, I can't argue for a position that I didn't make. Right. Yeah, and that, you know, it's interesting you bring up the immovability part because I, I think that is a misunderstanding from that side. When we talk about actus purus, we're not saying that God is a, is just sitting there. God is the fullness of action, but it is the perfection of action so as to not bring about change. But God is not just a stone. Um, so it's a misunderstanding of the of the terminology. 
yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, when when that is brought against us. Yeah. Amen, brother. So, how does our understanding of theology proper influence other areas of theology? Um, because obviously, theology doesn't remain in your your theology of one thing will affect your theology of other things. Um, you'll see people grow more consistent if they hold two contradictory beliefs. Eventually, one is going to influence the other. Uh, how specifically do you see theology proper influencing other areas of theology? Yeah, um, the, the the whole of our Christian life is knowing God. I mean, that's where everything Amen. you know starts. That I mean, it's uh, I, I think largely again it is another um, it's another byproduct of that restoration movement that we mentioned earlier in our conversation. Uh, they kind of shun looking at deep biblical truths or deep theological truths. You know, it was more an emphasis on practice and application and uh, acting as a Christian. Um, but we we cannot be we we cannot reject knowing God. That is where everything starts, and knowing God takes work. You know, He gave us His book to to this book of the Bible to to know Him and know Him rightly. You know, uh, far be it from us to just well, let's just assume a certain way and just, you know, act in what, how we think God is according to our creaturely ideas. Uh, but it's just a, another byproduct of, of that movement. Um, the American Christian culture of pietism. You can even throw pietism in there. Pietism shuns theological discussion, deep theological truths. Um, and it, it wants to... You know, uh, just kind of stay away from the theological depths of what they will say the theological depths are and, and replace it with the practical uh, surface matters, which, I mean, we, we do need to hear that. But that's that's what they they do. That's one of their calling cards. Um, but I think the 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 impact of it could be seen, as we mentioned also again earlier, modified immutability, immutability, uh, the rejection of impassibility. Um and uh, Christology is impacted uh, tremendously by reading some of the things that you see from Christ in the Gospels back into the divine being, not considering that Christ is unique. No one has ever been born past, present, or will be in the future that is like Christ because he has two natures. You know, and so you really have to do the legwork to uh, rightly interpret the text as it is as it pertains to Christ, but uh, your 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 doctrines of immutability, simplicity, as we mentioned, impassibility, um, and your Christology are definitely going to be impacted uh, by not uh, having your doctrine of God rolls or uh, ducks in a row. There, um, you'll you'll end up uh, when it comes to simplicity, saying things. Uh, well, you know, there's a real distinction in the attributes, you know, of God, um, rather than just understanding that, as Deuteronomy 6, 4 said, you know, uh, God is one. You know, um, Exodus 3, 14, I am who I am. You know, I mean, he just is, his essence is his attributes. And so there's no real distinction. And this is where the scholastics uh, are very, very helpful at. Um, <clears throat> plug in there for my guy Torch and Van Maastricht. Uh, those, those two are, the, are probably the two that I would recommend the most uh, when it comes to the, these topics. But you'll say that there's real 
you know, uh, distinctions and the attributes of God as if, you know, you have holiness and uh, justice and mercy, you know, everything just kind of forms like Captain Planet. And then uh, when you add them all together, you know, you've got God. Well, brothers, you know, what's the problem with that? So you have things adding up that make God. Uh, like our brother, you mentioned earlier, those all will say, well, these things logically then would have preceded God. You know, if they're they're making him up like car parts, you know. Um, but yeah, you're, I mean, you're just, it's just going to have a trickle down effect to all of those matters there. Um, and then, uh, of course, uh, with the uh, eternal relations of authority and submission. I, you know, I, I thought about it before I come on, on the call. I'm just going to start referring to it as eternal subordination of the son, like it was originally. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because, I mean, because, and I'm not saying that yeah. just to be controversial, but I mean, for this present generation, which I'm, I'm maybe 80, 100 years, I mean, that's what it has been called the eternal subordination of the son. Then it kept getting softer in the way it was presented, you know, successive generations. So then it went from eternal subordination of the son to eternal submission of the son to eternal functional subordination of the son. And then in this present incarnation uh, made famous by Owen Strahan, the eternal relations of authority and submission. See, that doesn't sound nearly as bad as eternal subordination, you know, of the son. So, um, yeah, that, that, that will have catastrophic impact on numerous doctrines. Uh, that we ought be believing as as Christians. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, um, the whole of the Christian life is is to know God. We're told that eternal life is to know God, um, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom He sent. Um, that is our our focus. And when we go into weird spots, that everything else is going to cascade from that. Um. So. Going to um, the eternal uh, subordination of the sun, why do frameworks such as that undermine biblical theism? Yeah, brothers, this, this, that's the question, right? Um, you know, I, I thank God for that question. I, I have a strong hatred for that position. And not because I think I'm right. You know, I, I, I couldn't, uh, I do care if I'm right. You know, I want to know God rightly, but I, I want him to be known rightly. And I think the number one area where it goes wrong at, and it just, again, trickles down to everywhere else you could take with, with that position. It does not rightly recognize the creator and creature distinction that we see in the text. There is a clear line of demarcation between the creator and the creature. And if you don't mind, I, I, I want to show this uh, from the text. And I want to mention something to you, too. You know, they uh, one of the charges that you probably have heard from them is, well, all you guys do is quote dead guys. And all you guys do is quote uh, the 1689 and the 1646 and three forms of unity. That's all you guys can do is quote what Augustine and the Athanasius and all those guys said, you know, so I, 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 I want to go to the text, you know, even though history is strong. Yes, we, we need that because we, that's that's access a check and balance for us. Let's go to the text. 
what is your argument going to be when you see something like Genesis 1, 1, <clears throat> excuse me, where it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Automatically, the authority of submission relationship is between God and whatever he just created. Us. Okay. If he creates, he is the one who has authority over that creation. And that's point blank period. Let's bring it a little bit closer to us. Genesis 2, 7. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. So God takes dust. Forms man, blows the breath of life into him. And there God forms man. But it doesn't stop there. Let's skip down to verse 15 and go through verse 17. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate and keep it. Oh, wait a minute. What's going on here? So God just took his creation, placed him somewhere, and then ordered him to do something. The Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat from it, you will surely die. So he commands man. He commands man to work. He gives man a law and he tells man the punishment for disobeying what he just said. So from the very beginning of our Bible, we see the creator creature distinction. And the only authority and submission relationship that exists is between creator and creature. Notwithstanding, you know, what we get to see in some of the other epistles about employers and employees. You know, we're just strictly talking the creator and the creature. And so uh, man is immediately thrust into this authority submission relationship, you know, with with his creator. So from the very beginning, what we see is that we see man is accountable to God. He's he's accountable to God. He's accountable to the one who created him, the one who is all authority, the one who is all powerful, the one who has the ability to execute judgment on those who would uh, disobey what he said. And so why I believe that to be very important is because when we look, when we look at Christ, the last Adam, we mentioned earlier how he has two natures, one divine, one human. And we see that those accounts of him in, in the gospel records, because of the numerous ways that it talks about him, you know, it, it references Christ as being thirsty and tired and sleeping and astonished and even say that he grew in wisdom and stature you know when he was a little child coming up as a young jewish boy but then at the same time you see uh the the gospel's account to him the ability to forgive sin and to promise people eternal life and to know what people are doing far off not even within his eyesight you know, and to, to heal people who have been infirmed from birth. Who can do that? It was said only God can do that. But wait, we just saw this same person. He was, he was just astonished. He was astonished at unbelief. He had to grow and learn things. You know, so how do you deal with that? 
it forces you to exegete the text properly. Why do I think that's important? Because that is really where the position of coordination goes wrong. They learn the line between the person of Christ not considering us two natures, and they missed and matched them all up. And then not only have they done that, they've read it back into the triune God. So that's that's what allows them to say, well, you know, we, we have authority and submission relationship in the Trinity because look at what Christ says, he says, My father is greater than I. Or not, you're saying there's levels of authority in God. I don't know, you know, how do I take that? But that's what happens the uniqueness of Christ has thrown a wrench in how they view God because they're not considering that. But I think what really nails it down, in my opinion, is Philippians 2 and Hebrews 5. If you really want to get to the nuts and bolts of this whole thing, is this. And I hope you brothers don't mind me reading this passage. Absolutely. Yeah, why would you mind me reading the Bible? I just would have overruled it. I'm like, wait a minute. No, read Aristotle. You'll get flooded with the the bad emails. They don't have my email. (laughs) Philippians 2, 6 through 8. Please, please listen to this language. Who, Christ, although he existed in the form of God, so it's setting something up first here. He existed in the form of God, did not regard that equality with God a thing to be grasped. But, contrasting it with this, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, what did he do? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now we can jump over to Hebrews 5 and look at what it says, verses 7 through 9. In the days of his flesh, Christ, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, 
he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. So my question will be, when did God ever have to, when did the being of God ever have to become something within his nature? The incarnation loses its significance if Christ just came to do what he was supposed to do. There would be nothing special about the incarnation if he had always been the eternally subordinate son. Why do we need to praise him? Why do we need to have faith in him? Why do we have to look on his sacrifice so reverentially if he had just been coming to do what he was supposed to do? Well, he was always eternally subordinate, so he just did what a good son would do. No, but he assumed the human nature so that he could become subordinate to the father. It's according to the flesh. In order to redeem mankind, he had to become a man in all ways, as Hebrews talks about, the self without sin, so that he could become our faithful high priest and intercede on the behalf of his people, you know, to God. So to say that the, the father has always been authoritative over the son as, you know, the, the guys like Owen Strahan and, and Bruce Ware and Wayne Gudum say, does violence to numerous areas of your theology. And it diminishes, it lessens what actually occurred in the incarnation. The incarnation is glorious and great because the son of God all-powerful, all-authoritative, supreme in majesty and excellence and exaltation, assumed the human nature so that he could become submissive. And he did it willingly. And so that is the significance of the incarnation. But the eternal subordination position lessens that. It does damage to it. And it does damage to the biblical text, and it hurts when you have to go through those texts uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane where you see Christ saying, not my will, but your will. They would have to say that there's two wills in play there. And now we're getting to talking about is, does the divine being have three wills or one? You see how it all just kind of goes haywire and rather than looking at that and understanding that that was him bringing his human will into subjection to the divine will of God on behalf of his people that he came to begin. You can't even, or came to say, you can't even begin to make sense rightly of the passages in the, in the gospels and in the rest of the New Testament as it explains Christ to us. I hate that position with a passion, brothers. Uh, and it will be my desire that all of us here will continue just to talk about it, debate it, whatever needs to occur. I know I've seen people say, well, uh, we don't need to keep talking about it. I'm getting discouraged by all of this discussion about it. Well, you may not be able to survive in the first century church. You you probably should be happy, you know, that you're here in 21st century America. You know, no, we're talking about the being of God. These things need to be beat and these things need to be discussed, you know? So, um, yeah, that's how I really feel about it. 
um, the position, it, it just betrays our history. Um, and it just does violence to, to the person of Christ, does violence to the, the person of the Father. And, it, and again, the poor Holy Spirit, he is just like, oh, he just has, he has some authority, but it's lesser than the other two, you know. But even that is destroyed when you look at the temptation of Christ, where the spirit led him into the wilderness. Wait a minute. Now, if I'm going by your position, you told me that it's essentially a hierarchy. The father has all authority, supreme authority, then the son, then the spirit. Well, what is the spirit doing leading Christ into the wilderness? That would have been a perfect opportunity for Christ to say, no, wait a minute. You're, you're forgetting the hierarchy here. Uh, Holy Spirit, you you know you don't need me into the wilderness. You don't you don't lead me. No, you have a little lesser authority than me. So no, we're gonna let's do this over again. It's not a tenable position. It's bad all the way around, and I pray that people will just continue to to, to further look at it. Amen. Well, appreciate your passion, Rashad. It is yeah. it is a it is a dangerous position. And it's it's a subtle position too. I think, like you talked about before, there seems to be this. Um, there's possibly a progression from fun, you know. There's real subordination, there's functional subordination, there's relational subordination, and it seems that um, the relational subordination, I guess, is what you would call like a soft subordination, where it tries to see it as a relational subordination, but not an ontological subordination, like adding these other relations onto God. Um, that somehow distinguish the persons, but you end up ontologically breaking them up. You know, you, if if the son is willfully submitting to the father, that implies he has a different will than the father, right? Now you have a separate agency. Now you have a separate God, a separate. There, there's no one will anymore. There's no simplicity. There's no unity of action. There's no unity of of uh, of will. The ontological oneness is broken and now you've essentially uh created an Aryan position and that's i get what we would call like semi-arian because they're not obviously taking it fully to arius's conclusion but the the basic premise is there um willingly or not and i know that you know owen strang gets all bent out of shape when he's called a semi-arian but that's what he is that's the essence of arianism if jesus is subordinate to the father in any way, shape, or form, it's an ontological subordination as you break simplicity. Um, now you have a separate agent, a separate God, or something less than God. He's not really the same essence as the Father. Now you've changed God. Now you've undermined the perfection of God. Um, so it creates all these problems, it's, and it's dangerous because it is so subtle. It's like, oh, yeah, the, it, it says that in 1 Corinthians... Uh, I think it's First Corinthians. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, where the head of Christ is God, right? Yeah. yeah oh, yeah. so Christ must be subordinate to the Father, you know, but mm -hmm. not taking into account what you said, his uh, his other nature, his human nature, which is unified in the person, right? They're unified uh, in the the second person of the Trinity. Those two are unified together, but not mixed. But he acts according to each nature. They're not mixed. One does not communicate to the other in in a mixture sense. Um, so it, it's it's so dangerous because it's so subtle and it, it just undermines uh, who our God is. Um, it's very sad. 
It's very sad. But yeah, we must keep talking about it. We must keep pushing against it uh, in in all these in all these ways, biblically and confessionally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, it, you know, what's interesting about the verses that they like to use for First Corinthians eleven and First Corinthians fifteen also. Um, how well, Christ will hand the kingdom over to God and then God will be all in all. Um, those are the same passages that the Arians used when they were all up in arms back in the uh, third and fourth centuries. You know, those are, you know, they. I forget who says it, but every heretic, and I'm not calling these brothers heretics, but the old saying is that every heretic has their favorite Bible verses. And so when you see a lot of these um, articles being written uh, by Owen Strayan and some others, you see this long list of verses. And it's all of the verses or a lot of the verses that we talk about. You know, it's very easy just to throw a bunch of verses on the page and press in in your blog post, you know, without any context. And on the surface reading of it, it looks really good. Like, oh, well, he proved his, his case. Great job. You know, oh man, you really shut those class of these guys up. How can they not see eternal subordination? Yeah, you got them. You know, but you you are just posting verses without the context, without dealing with the context of it. And that's a poor, poor way of arguing. And that's how the Arians argue. You know, um, they just throw passages out. You know, very easy to do that. Amen. Yeah, you can. You can do that for any position, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's plenty of verses in isolation that'll prove one thing, but the moment you start reading the context, it's like, ah, no, I, mm-hmm. I, I think you're wrong. I think you're mm-hmm. wrong there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or you're just not considering the being of God, like the, the Genesis six passage, you know, uh, where God looked at the sin of man and he was grieved in his heart that he had created him. You know, you could just put that on the page and pass it out to people and. You know, from a surface reading of it, they say, well, God, he, he, wow, he grieved. We can hurt God, you know. But when you don't uh, consider the other passage of scripture and play with reference to God's nature about how he doesn't change, you know, he references uh, how he doesn't change. That's why you're not consumed. I think it's Malachi 3.16. You know, uh, the Lord does not lie. Uh, You know, he's the same today, yesterday, and forevermore. You know, he is who he is. The Lord is one. You know, when you don't uh, consider the passages with reference to God's nature and see who he is, you're not going to be able to rightly, you know, interpret those passages and understand them as being anthropomorphic or anthropopathic expressions, trying to communicate something to, you know, creatures, you know, because our language fails. You know, uh, we're finite trying to explain and talk about and discuss the infinite. So our language is going to fail, you know, at, at some point, but it's attempting to communicate something to us, you know? So, um, yeah, just throwing passages on the page, man. I mean, it looks real good, but, uh, it's, it's, it'll just burn up if you light a fire to it. Amen. Well, closing out here, Rashad, um, what are some materials you would recommend for further study of this topic? Oh man, yeah, this I was really looking forward to this right here. So <laughs> I forgot one of my books, but uh let me so let me mention it first. Um The Son Who Learned Obedience by Glenn Butner. That is one of three books that I recommend anyone to read who wants to have a uh, 
Uh, who wants to take a, a, a dive into the whole eternal subordination and debate? You know, from the very beginning in that book, he, he hits on the fact that God's being is one will. The three persons share the one divine will. And he hits on that point and nails on that point. And then that's the catalyst for uh, his his um, the bulk of his uh, thesis in the remainder of the book. Um, but starting um, from ancient history, Athanasius' uh, defense against uh, the Arians, I think, is also, can you see that? Is this uh, okay? Yeah, Athanasius' yep. uh, book, because a lot of people say that we like to just quote these guys without any reference to anything that wrote. No, we read these guys too. Um, on the Incarnation, also by Athanasius of Alexandria, also. And uh, this is probably been my favorite, uh, the Trinity, the second edition, uh, Augustine, right there. I recommend this as well because he's he's hitting on the idea of, of subordination as well. And he thrashes it, uh, in my opinion. Uh, specifically for, or also in conjunction with the uh, eternal, uh, the son who learned obedience. I got a couple books also that I would reference here. Two of them by Kevin Giles, The Eternal Generation of the Son. This is probably the first one that I read in 2016 uh, when everything kicked off. And boy, it just, it just kicked everything in overdrive for me. As you can see, a subtitle there says, uh, Maintaining Orthodoxy in Trinitarian Theology. He has lots of quotes from the sources in here, lots of historical quotes, lots of ideas like many of what we talked about, why the idea of eternal subordination of the son fails. It fails biblically. It fails historically. It's just, it's just a big, fat failure. And then the other book, Jesus and the Father by, by Giles also. This is a little earlier than his other book. This is a, another book, uh, uh, pretty pretty similar to his Eternal Generation of the Son, but it's coming from a little bit of a di different angle. It's a little more polemic, uh, my, in my opinion. Model event, modern evangelicals reinvent the doctrine of the Trinity. Well, tell me that isn't worth the price of the book. <laughs> and uh, then <laughs> this is, you, you brothers know this, this is probably the one that um, is getting a whole lot of people uh, up in arms. This one and the um, James Dozal, yeah. This one in Dozal's books, if you just mention them to some people, you go get hate emails, man. I'm telling yeah. you right now, and then if, if they can't get to you, Daniel, they go get to Sean or Trap, <laughs> who couldn't join us today, but that's neither here nor there. Simply Trinity by Matthew Barrett. Uh, this is one of the three that I, I also uh, mentioned uh, when it gets to the Trinity. And then for more classical theism type stuff, we mentioned it. Uh, those all's book should be required reading along with Barrett's book. All that is in God. Classical mm. theism there. It's going to hit on simplicity and and, and his sister uh, attributes of uh, mutability and impassibility. And uh, same with this confessing the impassable God. Yep. Uh, by the by the brothers uh, Baines, Barcelos, Butler, Limbaugh, Renahan, all those guys wrote this one. Really thick, really good, full of quotes, history, Bible passages, really good uh, explanation for uh, why our God, you can't liken creaturely traits to him. This is one that may be a little bit lesser known. I'm not sure. Peter Sandler, Simply God, hmm. covering the classical trinity. 
uh, forward by Paul Ham. Yeah. Um, okay. So he's going to talk about simplicity as it is in the title, but he also hits on, uh, of course, these things bleed over mutability and passability and um, timelessness of God, too. He touches on a little bit in here. This is really good, uh, also. And then, um, baby Renahan, I call him baby Renahan, uh, <laughs> God without passions. Now he has a um, he has a, a, a not a reader. This is the reader, but he has yeah, a yeah. I got it. Um, yeah, a deity and decree. Yes, that one too. Yeah, I was going to bring it. I'm like, man, I'm just go bring my whole one of my whole sections in my bookshelves up here. But <laughs> um, so yeah, deity and decree, and it's God without passions. Uh, that's going to really explain uh, what that looks like from from the uh, angle of God and how you can account again creaturely passions to him because of how much damage it would do not only um to to god and who he is but for it didn't have catastrophic consequences for us as well and he also has lots of quotes um, from history just tracing it down through our lineage our heritage about how this was the orthodox position uh, that the church has held historically and again he's going to touch on some other things too because you, you just can't talk about you know things like impassibility without talking about immutability they're all they're intertwined so it's it could be more but um well there is more but th those are the ones um that i will probably highlight yeah and and highlighting some of those that you mentioned barrett's book i think is a really good introduction you know if yeah. it's very easy to read it's not a it's not a difficult read um, Dolezal, you know, the level he's writing might not, mm -hmm. is not necessarily the greatest book maybe to give to a, a person that's just fresh into these things. Mm -hmm. Um, I would probably give them this and then maybe have him read that, but this is a really helpful, he writes at a very easy level. It's not highly academic, mm -hmm. but he still captures very deep truths and it's mm -hmm. very helpful. Right. And, uh, Renahan's book, Deity and Decree is also, cause it's written in a primer. Um, it's written very it's very digestible mm -hmm. um the paragraphs are broken up very easily um so those are some good starting points for people who want to get into this doctrine more and then there's others that flesh you know adonis vidu's book on inseparable operations that's not for a beginner oh, yeah. oh my have stars, you read that Rashad? listen i got it man oh, i started it. it i started it but man I, I i think my wife probably called the fire and rescue she saw smoke coming from the room. So, something's on fire, and my ears is just smoking. I'm like, my. Oh, it. it I gotta I, tackle I'd that another it, time. It'd yeah. be like you read it, and I, it's like, okay, I gotta, I gotta stop and digest this because this. Yeah, is, it is. It's that's really, not really, a, really. That's not a beginner read. <laughs> no, not at all. Yeah, and he had an, uh, another one. I think it came. Yeah, this one's from a few years yeah, ago. Uh, a Divine Missions. Yep, I have that here too. Divine yep, Missions. Yep. Yeah, but I got that one. I haven't broken that one open. I actually just found out about that. Small. Yeah, I haven't found um, out about that one. Um, I, just, I think I just found out like a month ago, so I ordered it. So it's sitting in there with the rest of them in this um, in this topic. So, all right, Sean. Any closing words before we? Uh, no, just thank you very much for being on, Rashad. This was very, very helpful and very much appreciated. I'm honored, man. Thank you for, for having me on. I really appreciate welcome, it, brother. Thank I hope you. it was helpful, you know, yeah. for someone. Um, if they want to, you know, inbox me or whatnot on Facebook, please. Um, these things need to continue to be be talked about in, in my, my humble opinion. So. 
No, 100% agree with that. It's all very important. Well, thank you everyone for joining us today. Um, this has been a very good discussion. Um, and it's, it's just good to connect with other brothers in different places. Um, and then, you know, we have this fellowship and this close unity as, as brothers and sisters in Christ, even though we're so far away. That is one of the things that I really enjoy about doing this podcast is we have guests from different places and it feels like we're, we're just, we're close together because of the unity we have in Christ and our, and our unification of doctrine. Yeah. Um, so brother, it's, it's been good to fellowship with you today. Thank you for being on the show. Appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. Well, with that, everyone have a great weekend and Lord willing, we will be back next week. Uh, we'll plan right. Sean and I are going to try and do an episode on Romans seven. Um, that controversial uh, section in Romans 7. So be sure to join us uh, next week. With that, everyone, take care.